Hello, I'm Danielle Yet, and you're listening to Critical Faith. This podcast is coming to you from the Center for Philosophy, Religion, and Social Ethics at the Institute for Christian Studies. ICS is a graduate school of philosophy in Toronto, where I am a junior member. We gather members of our ICS community here to talk about all things faith, scholarship, and society, and the many ways those things interact. We hope Critical Faith gives you a bit of a glimpse into the everyday life of ICS. This semester, we're tackling some big questions. We're asking our guests to talk about the themes of evil, resistance, and judgment as they come up in the course of their work, their studies, and their lives. I'm Hector Cero Ferrer, and I'm also a junior member at ICS. Today, we're talking to Eric Farr, who is a PhD student at the University of Toronto's Department for the Study of Religion and works with a number of educational programs organized by the Baha'i Community of Canada. We'll welcome Eric to the podcast in just a minute. Is there something that irks you, that gnaws at you, that people just don't understand? For our first segment, Here's My Thought, we're giving folks the chance to set the record straight on any issue of their choice, big or small, in five minutes or less. This week, it's my turn. I'm Hilary Barlow, librarian at ICS, and here's my thought. So something that kind of sticks in my craw is this idea that if you're not doing something in like the latest, most technologically advanced way, that you're like doing it wrong. And you're behind the times or or something like that. Because I don't think that's necessarily true. And this is something that I was reminded of recently because I was I was traveling. I did a big, in August, I did a big multi-destination uh, trip to visit family and friends. I'd, I'd printed out all of my tickets because I was going by various, various methods of transportation. And someone asked me, you know, why isn't it just on your phone? I was just kind of, and it was like, maybe it was like a tonal thing, but I felt like it was a criticism of me. Maybe I was taking it too personally. But it is something I've been asked before because I do prefer to print out bus tickets, train tickets, what have you. And one thing I don't think that system is quite perfect yet. Some of the, because I was going by multiple forms of transportation, some of them don't accept like you getting your phone scanned as you board for one thing. So one thing I could not have had it all on my phone. But, you know, also I, I have a very skimpy data plan and I have and I don't have like a full phone plan in the United States because I currently live in Canada. And so if I had not, not remembered to take a screenshot of every ticket and have it on my phone, it might have been difficult for me to get them. And also because I have sensitive eyes, I keep my phone on a very low brightness. So you know, I always have to turn it up every time someone had to scan things. And I feel like in general, we, we, you know, we all live in a mixed digital analog world. And that's fine. I'm not a Luddite. I, I'm a millennial. <laughs> I, I'm on my phone probably way too much. I, uh, I read books, uh, in paper and ebooks. You know, I'm, I'm, I engage with digital culture a whole lot. But I think it's, 
it's okay to have a mixed analog digital life. I think most of us do. I also sometimes get criticized for I like paper date books. I, I use digital calendars for work and things where it's required, but I prefer to have paper date books and I find that I can look back at them more easily, sometimes depending on what um, software you use. You know, if you switch to a new device, you might lose some of your old dates and, and things on a date book. And I like being able to look back at it kind of like a like a Cliff Notes diary. And I have actually years of date books that I've kept. Um, but I just think it's, a, it's an aspect of our culture where we're always assuming the new thing is good. And sometimes it is, but sometimes it's just a new product that actually hasn't been tested very well. And we think it's good because the marketing of it is good. And we haven't really examined the pros and cons of it. Another thing that may that confronted me with this issue was earlier this year I had a concussion and one of the lingering symptoms was light sensitivity. So looking at screens all day was actually quite difficult and I had to um, ration my screen use to not get a headache. So I only use it for really important things and for work and it, what confronted me with how that's the default way to entertain oneself to interact with the world like even if I went to get a sandwich or something now the menus are often on a, on a very bright screen which if you have healthy eyes and you don't have any eye problems is prob isn't a problem but for me at the time I would have to shield my eyes from like a, a Tim Horton screen to, <laughs> to get a coffee because I was still you know had these lingering symptoms from my concussion I you know I encourage everyone to to try new things and I and I do try to keep up with technology because there are a lot of aspects of technology that are a huge you know part of my life, but I think it's fine if we live in a mixed analog to the digital world. I think we are going to for as long as any of us are alive, and it's all right to to just do things your own way and yeah that's my that's my thought. For our second segment, we at ICS are reckoning with the problem of evil, exploring possible modes of resistance and discerning moments of judgment as a community. So we are asking our guests to talk about how these issues intersect with their work and life. Today, we're joined by Eric Farr, who works and studies at the intersection of religion, education, and public life. As a member of the Toronto Baha'i community, Eric actively engages in interfaith work. In fact, I know Eric through our shared work with the Canadian Interfaith Conversation, a Canada-wide interfaith group that a number of us here at ICS work closely with. Eric studies the role of religion in society and especially interested in the importance of youth and education uh, in public and religious life. So welcome, Eric. Thanks for joining us. Thanks so much for having me. I'm excited to, to be here. An informal tradition here on the podcast is to first ask our guests how they came to their current areas of study and work. So could you tell us briefly how you ended up in both the work that you do and the studies that you're currently engaged in? And within that, maybe what keeps you up at night to start there? I guess going back a long time, which maybe goes into maybe like the, the psychological reasons for pursuing the area of study that I pursue. Yeah. So I, uh, my mother is a Baha'i and my 
dad is a is a Catholic, so I was kind of raised with both uh, these these religious traditions very much uh, in my life, and I think that although kind of I've I've become a Baha'i, like I've chosen to to live as a Baha'i, um, the Christian tradition and the Bible in particular has been a huge source of spiritual and intellectual inspiration for me. So uh, when I decided to pursue graduate studies initially, this was like 10 years ago now, I did a master's in New Testament studies, uh, looking at kind of the conception of the child as it, as it um, underpins early Christian literature. Uh, and I kind of think that, that somehow that was sort of something that would allow me to connect with this uh, spiritual tradition of my, of my father. And then when I finished my master's, I, I kind of I moved to Toronto uh, and started engaging in a number of these educational programs that the Baha'i community organizes for, for young people, especially this age group between uh, 12 and 15, which we kind of refer to as junior youth, which is this, you know, you guys probably remember what it's like to be 12, 13. It's like a period of transition. You're kind of changing physically, intellectually, spiritually, realizing all these different things about the world. Um, so this, this program tries to, uh, tries to accompany those young people through those kind of turbulent years of adolescence uh, and to take ownership over their own spiritual, social, intellectual life. So then after I did that for maybe five years in different neighborhoods across Toronto, I kind of started looking back on my, on my life and looking forward and thinking, okay, well, what, what, how can I bring these kind of strands of my life together? And it made sense to, to start a PhD and looking uh, particularly at how these two different strands of my life, religion and education, how they kind of uh, interact in society. As we know, those, those are kind of uh, those places where religion and public ed education come together are often uh, uh, are often sites of controversy. They're often flashpoints for broader conversations about the role of religion in society, uh, the relationship between religion uh, and secularism, and I think also because young people are are seen as this uh, you know this population in development. They're the future of society, but they're also vulnerable. So it's, uh, it's often a place that a lot of people get really excited about, either positively or negatively. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so that's kind, of, uh, that's kind of how I got to where I am, I think, and, and what I'm studying, what I do in my studies, and then also what I kind of uh, do for work alongside that. Has your uh, idea of what you're doing changed from when you started studying these things? And working with these communities too now or has it changed in any notable way yeah i mean i think that that there's a way of looking at the role of religion in society kind of within the framework uh within the kind of intellectual or philosophical frameworks that govern society so one of the things that that um i look at in my research is how secularism uh, is typically conceived of or is understood as kind of that which remains when you remove religion. So it's kind mm -hmm. of the, the basis of reality is sort of secular, and then religion is this sort of additive that now that uh, we live in a modern society, we can recognize it for what it is and remove it and kind of see what reality really is. Um, so I think that there is a way of thinking about the role of religion in society that in some sense participates in that assumption that the basis of reality is basically material 
and and you can engage in a study of religion that takes that as kind of your your fundamental assumption. But if you if you start to see that as just as an assumption that has kind of emerged over history, uh, that that's not actually how the majority of the world conceives of reality. It's also not how you know how the society has conceived of reality. It just opens up new possibilities for seeing how, say, young people uh, can draw on the resources of of religion to contribute to meaningful social change. Um, so I think I think that that would be one way that I think my my understanding of my work has has kind of evolved is sort of seeing some of these um, foundational assumptions of public life uh, and just sort of interrogating them and seeing them as not as not simply natural or uh, not as a given necessarily. Yeah. What is that uh, done for your kind of activity as like actively working with these young gr- groups of young people? Like what is that shift in kind of framework done for how you work out that framework yeah yeah i mean i think that i think that when you talk with young people um you know you talk to young people who are between 12 and 15 you see such uh noble aspirations Mm -hmm. you see there's there it's a period of life where they haven't become completely disillusioned (laughs) with (laughs) you know with the injustices and the and the struggles of the world um and they have a lot of hope for the future um and you can, you can see them participating in a society that gives them categories for thinking, gives them habits of thought that really frustrate their attempts to contribute to meaningful social change. Mm-hmm. So I think that kind of acknowledge, starting to, to think about like, well, what, not just what are the structures, like the, the political or social or institutional structures that prevent young people from actually contributing to change, but what are the intellectual foundations of those structures? Like, what are the ideas and the conceptual categories that generate these structures? What are the um, really the ideas that give rise to habits of thought and patterns of action that actually make it hard for young people to to contribute meaningfully to social change? And I think that um, looking at secularism, I've found it to be kind of a fruitful space to to look at those kind of, the, to see kind of what are actually the foundational assumptions within uh, secularism when we start to look at it a little bit more critically. How is the person conceived of mm-hmm. within, um, within secularism as a framework of thought? Uh, how is religion conceived? How is agency um, understood? And then how do these become kind of translated into actual institutional practices in a, in a public education system that sees secularism as really the only the only foundation for uh, for a just education system in a in a religiously diverse uh, society. Yeah. One of the um, the elements of that you just mentioned, then then I often return to. Um, I use a lot of the the documents that are have come out of the <clears throat> Baha'i community to work with youth who are somehow engaged in social action, uh, motivated by their own faith. Um, and what I find fascinating in their response to those is that they um, they are a bit of a at, um, between the, the rock and the hard place. That's how you say in English, <laughs> uh, because they are always um, compelled or they are always um, asked or called to to act, to lead. To, you are the future. There are so many things that rest on you. 
Um, and on the other side, what you're mentioning, there are all these societal structures that allow them to lead, but not in a meaningful way. It's not the leadership comes with without any power. It's only the responsibility of um, having the future in their hands, but not clear elements that allow them to um, to really resist what society does to um, kind of normalize situations that are unjust. So I I wanted to kind of pick your brain about that specifically because it connects with one of our themes, which is resistance. That there is a lot of resistance in youth because there is a lot of hope that things can actually change. So what is your experience about that? Uh, so maybe I'll just mention a few things that I think sort of condition the way that that young people are able to contribute to processes of social change um, that kind of maybe will connect to this question of resistance as well. So I think, you know, there, there are, like you say, there, there are these kind of calls for young people to, um, to participate in uh, public life. Uh, and often these are also from the youth themselves. It's kind of presented as sort of a demand for a seat at the table, um, which is valuable. Like young people do need to be um, present in deliberative spaces that kind of generate policies and, and different kinds of practices in different institutions. But that in a way it's also limited. What, what that ultimately does is elevates often a single young person uh, it kind of, uh, it, what it kind of does is it, it sort of perpetuates a kind of cultural elitism that allows certain kinds of young people to uh, give voice that is supposedly uh, representative of the rest of young people, but that's not always true. Uh, the other thing that often happens is um, young, like youth empowerment is, is often reduced to uh, political empowerment, uh, to engaging, to basically to, to getting young people to vote. And you hear this like with calls to lower the voting age and things like that, which is, they're not, they're not necessarily bad ideas, but what actually is the, is the motivation for it? Like what, and what also, how will that also create, not just again, like a population of young people, uh, a few of whom can contribute to conversations at a high level, and then dictate kind of the the interests the interests or the the modes of participation of other young people um, throughout the country. So one of the things that I uh, I like to think about, and also that I think the the programs of the Baha'i community are are trying to understand, is what's what what does it really mean to be a protagonist of social change? It's not simply something that happens at the level of political institutions. You know, young people can be mobilized or can, and can, can read the reality of their communities, uh, can see what the needs are and can organize together different kinds of, you know, different kinds of service-oriented projects that can really contribute to the material and spiritual well-being of their, of their communities. Um, and, that, and that's really not captured in, uh, in this conversation about kind of a voice, a seat at the table um, of a few youth, really. So we, we've had a couple of times um, this semester uh, a return to, well, there is, there is judgment there is, uh, and there is resistance, but how can, do we get to judgment and resistance? How, how do we get to form people that um, can, in fact, um, judge the reality around them and be able to act 
morally uh, be, be able to um, react in a way that brings about life that allows for flourishing of society all all these questions so um since kind of you're kind of leading us there through the education angle my my question was would be more about um about that one how do you see the process of creating those really uh, meaningful spaces or um or structures that will allow youth and not just certain youth to um to develop the um, robust judgment and be able to participate by kind of resisting and, and, and advocating for social change. Yeah, I mean, I think it's, it's a really complex process. It's not like a formula that can be just simply applied because, you know, different youth populations have different aspirations, different communities have different kinds of realities and different opportunities and challenges that, that uh, confront them. Um, I would think of a, maybe a few different things. So one, I think, is is looking at like youth contributions to social change as kind of existing on a spectrum, maybe. So you may have some youth that that really, uh, you know, go to the forefront and engage in really kind of like high level conversations and things like that. But then other youth may just want to like come along with their friends to to a service project in their neighborhood. You know, they may identify a need that exists in their neighborhood and maybe they'll just want to participate in that way. But to somehow, if all of the attention goes to those youth that are kind of, um, maybe are eloquent in a particular way so that they can, they can impress these people <laughs> in, in political institutions, then it actually devalues the contribution of, of young people who really have a lot to do or really can contribute so much in their in their communities one thing that i think is is really important is also somehow helping young people develop a language within which they can describe reality and articulate their concerns and articulate the the paths that they perceive uh, towards a more just and equitable environment so a lot of uh, one of the things that a lot of these programs focus on is developing um, developing kind of linguistic capacity, developing the capacity to read reality, to participate in uh, fruitful cons consultation, to really be able to, as a group of young people, a group of 12-year-olds, to uh, deliberate on the pressing needs of, of their communities, and then to, to, uh, to provide support in carrying that out. I think a lot of times young people have these aspirations, but then they don't necessarily know exactly how to how to go about implementing their ideas. So one of the key things I think in in the youth programming that I'm a part of is is this idea of sort of mentorship that each group of 12 to 15 year olds has an older youth that's like 18 or 25 or 33 in my case <laughs> that that you know is able to to be that kind of like older friend um, that isn't in this sort of instructional mode but is really helping to facilitate a learning process um, directed towards creating some kind of change in a community it seems like there's two sides well at least two sides to kind of what you're the dynamic that you're talking about in empowering youth there's the side of actually empowering the youth to be active so to be observant, to be articulate, to be, you know, in conversational, like community, all these things. 
But then there also seems to be another side to the problem that is kind of teaching everyone else. So teaching the older population, basically, how to listen to the youth in the first place. So not just trying to like tokenize them, like you mentioned, like idealizing this one articulate young person and then saying, you know, oh, that's good enough. Like we've mm-hmm. we've done our job. We're listening to the young people now. Um, like what you're trying to draw out seems to be a much deeper kind of like habit, for lack of a better word, or like kind of social value of listening to young people. Because it seems to me that it's also tied into kind of a mindset of just being hospitable to like the silenced groups like oppressed groups or marginalized people like it's kind of tied into that to kind of training society to listen to people who can't necessarily you know elbow their way to the table but like trying to create room at the table in a more long-term sense Mm -hmm. yeah no totally i mean i think something that we've tried to avoid in the youth programs at the Baha'i community is a kind of an approach to youth programming that really just focuses on youth, mm-hmm. that to the exclusion of other other people. Um, I think what these programs try to respond to is an understanding that society, in order to um, become more peaceful and just, uh, requires requires action that's informed by by a strong sense of purpose among young people, but that sense of purpose is is twofold. One is that you have a, a strong sense of purpose to change uh, the structures of society, to change the kind of the reality around you, to change your environment. The other side to that sense of purpose is to actually develop your own individual character and your own individual capacities, um, your 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 moral framework to strengthen your capacity to act uh, morally and effectively. And, and I think if you focus on only one of those sides, like if you focus on just the individual in terms of a programming point of view, then you will get this like, these like kind of super youth who, who, who become the voice for all the other youth. And if you just focus on the structures of society, then it's very easy to just try and create certain kind of external outcomes for young people to see, okay, well, there's, there's now there's three youth at this table as opposed to no youth. So we've succeeded in empowering youth. But I think what the, one of the implications of that of that approach, that sense of a twofold uh, purpose, is knowing that actually the extent to which these youth can be can can grow and can develop is actually dependent on the extent to which the community around them grows and develops, and the the extent to which the community grows and develops is uh, to a certain extent <laughs> dependent on uh, the the state of society and the state of st- the the structures that surround that community. Um, so when we approach, uh, w- our, our, when we think about youth programming or youth programs, we're, we're thinking about those largely in the context of community building and thinking about these young people as individuals that have families and these families uh, interact with institutions in their community. If we only kind of engage with young people, then then actually your efforts won't necessarily yield the kind of fruits that we might hope. So I think when we engage in that kind of community building, it's really a, a process of, of building genuine friendships with, with youth and their families, uh, getting to know the other programs and not participating with them in a, in a spirit of, of uh, competition, like mm-hmm. trying to like 
you know, that we're stealing each other's youth in a, in a program or something that's like, that's so foreign to kind of what would be our approach. Because I think at, at root, one of the things we're trying to, one of the main principles of the Baha'i faith is that humanity is one. Uh, and that, and the implications of, of the oneness of humankind um, means that, that the youth, although we want them to participate to constructive processes of social change, we also want them to move with their communities, to move with their families, to move with their peers, to move with their, the elders in the neighborhood. Because actually, if you just try and do one of those things, then you're going to limit the advance of everyone. You mentioned one of the, the principles of the, the Baha'i faith. Um, but for, for many of our audience members, the Baha'i faith would be something quite foreign. So. Right, right. Um, uh, can you maybe give us some of those principles, especially those connected to um, or that those that root um, the the desire of working with youth and, and doing that kind of community activities that you were mentioning before? Yeah, for just to give a kind of a brief uh, description of the Baha'i faith, like the Baha'i faith is that it's an independent world religion um, that whose main principle is this, this one that I mentioned, the oneness of humankind. Um, and Baha'is follow the, the teachings of Baha'u'llah, which is a, an Arabic title, which means the glory of God. And we kind of, Baha'is see our current moment as being this, this kind of stage of transition. We live in a kind of an age of transition, moving from humanity's turbulent years of adolescence. <laughs> <laughs> we kind of stand on the, on the brink of, of maturity in a way we, we we've seen kind of like you know social and technological processes advance uh, at a rate kind of unprecedented in the last uh, couple centuries um, but in order to meet the demands of this new uh, stage in the development of humankind we we need to develop new um, capacities new or strengthen kind of existing moral uh, and spiritual uh, capacities and qualities to an unprecedented degree um, and that, in a way, this moment is unique in, the, in human history and that we can actually begin to conceive of the world as one human family. That was almost an impossible thing to imagine uh, not too long ago. So uh, some of the principles of the Baha'i faith that inform our work with young people, the oneness of humankind would be, would be the principal one. But one of the main principles of the Baha'i faith is is the is the need for education for every human being. That that every there's the, a need for universal education. Um, there's a need for for uh, that science and religion must be in harmony. That kind of truth can't contradict truth. The educational programs that the Baha'i community pursues it's not simply in the mode of religious instruction. So when young people come to these educational programs, they're not learning about the, the principles of the Baha'i faith, they're getting to consult about some of these um, spiritual principles uh, that can give rise to uh, kind of collective action across faith lines. Also, kind of that, that science and religion piece, just to kind of pick that up again, that, that also we want them to develop certain scientific capacities to be able to observe, um, to be able to, to, to learn to be able to kind of articulate things with precision and objectivity to the extent that that's possible. So these kind of principles inform a Baha'i approach to, to education. And I think like the implications of all of those things are quite, are quite vast and, and maybe just to connect it a little bit to resistance, um, 
you know, I think if we think about the the principle of the oneness of humankind, then we also need to think like, what are the processes that will yield a more just society? Um, and to what extent is resistance not quite enough to get us to a really fruitful, uh, peaceful society? Um, and that's not to say that there's not a whole lot of stuff that needs to be resisted, <laughs> but just that, that um, how important it is to, to avoid reducing um, constructive agency to, to resistance. Yeah, and I think, that, I think that in order for young people to commit the time and energy it takes to build prosperous communities and a prosperous society, you need a, quite a compelling and lofty vision of what society can be. Um, it has to tap the roots of motivation. Um, and, and I think that that one thing that we're learning about is that is, is more easily achieved when, when you look beyond also the, those forces that need to be resisted. I mean, you need to take them. You can't, you can't be ignorant of them. You have to, to know what's there. But, but um, our vision also needs to, to press beyond that to, to something maybe beyond resistance as well. Yeah, it's, it's interesting how, um, in addition to what Daniel was mentioning, um, a lot of our guests this semester have um, resisted the idea of resistance mm -hmm. on its own. Mm -hmm. Like, is is resistance is both resistance and the horizon that that causes resistance. So there is a horizon of aspirations. You've you've talked about that a, a few times, and um, that might look slightly different for different communities but that is what shapes how they will react and how they will create new social forms and, and how resistance will play out because there is there are kind of many different expressions of resistance and and they go all the way from the violent to to the most peaceful and um here you kind of talk about always kind of the connection between peace unity um new social forms and and bringing resistance within that trajectory helps us kind of see where you're coming from but also create a little bit of a path that that others can kind of talk about here uh, a lot of our students and at ICS are deeply invested in the idea of kind of societal architecture and and that building a new society being kind of the goal of kind of the Christian call which in a sense it's 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 akin to to um, what the Baha'i faith will, mm -hmm. will say. What of your of your research, what you're currently uh, looking into, is most compelling? Would you want to share with us, knowing kind of our background as people of faith who are doing scholarship, who um, who are very interested in the ways in which scholarship and faith life are integrated? When I think about sort of the relationship between the things that I study. Uh, and again, I'm, I'm like early in my studies. I'm, I'm, I just finished coursework, but I'm starting to think more concretely about uh, my dissertation project. As a, as a person of faith, I mean, my commitment to thinking about how public education systems in a secular society shape um, the kinds of lives that young people feel like they can live and the kinds of contributions that young people feel they can make to society is obviously like directly informed by my experience uh, with these educational programs and uh, that the Baha'i community um, organizes. And I mean, I think, I think a lot of it comes from, you know, working with young people, having conversations with them about spiritual themes, young people from diverse religious backgrounds, and just seeing 
how difficult it is actually to for young people to discuss those those themes to actually have a conversation um, that draws on faith that that actually can make a contribution to public life and so anyway so so this experience with kind of operating these uh, or, or running these these programs with the Baha'i community led me to question like where do these challenges that young people have in conversing on spiritual themes where do they actually come from? What is the conception actually of religion and the conception of spirituality that, that underpins these challenges? And for me, that kind of led me back to looking at, at secularism, um, secularism and kind of secular liberalism. Um, because when you look at that, that framework, one of the things you'll notice is that it has like it has a particular conception of religion, a conception of religion that essentially is, is relegated to the private sphere. Um, which what, what that ultimately does is sets the individual person prior to their religious convictions. So an individual person then sees kind of like the way that a young person would engage uh, with religion would be kind of examining the slate of options uh, and then selecting one of those, which means something very different than, than religion as being something that someone recognizes or something that someone embodies or something... That, that somebody is. And that, that will also affect how young people feel like they can draw on religion. If, if religion is something that they can kind of select and then discard, that, that will change the way one approaches the, the intellectual and spiritual resources of religion in their efforts to, to contribute to public discourse or to contribute to, to uh, community building in their neighborhood. So, I mean, I don't necessarily know exactly like what's the ideal way that a young person should do those things, but I also can see the limitations of the present, mm -hmm. uh, the present circumstances, the present kind of reality for young people. We need to resist that reality. <laughs> <laughs> Indeed. <laughs> And that brings us to our final segment, What's Your Pleasure? This is where we get to kick off our shoes and talk about the other things we do for fun. The movies and television shows we are watching, the sports and games we play, the food and drink we make and enjoy, the music we listen to, and so on. So, Danielle, what's your pleasure? My pleasure is both book and art related. I recently went to a book sale at the Toronto Public Library with one of our ICS alums, Mark Novak, and who is notorious for having a sixth sense for literally every book sale going on ever. Um, so he told me this was going on and I should come down because they had a lot of great art books. So I was like, sure. So I went down and flipped through all their art books. And discovered this uh it's a very large it's just a large art book of a bunch of albrecht durer's uh watercolors which albrecht durer is more well known uh for his woodcuts that he does so like etchings that are usually printed in like black and white um a lot of like allegorical images and stuff and like images of saints and all these things i love albrecht durer like he's one of my favorites he's very melodramatic um, but this this book is great because like his I feel like his watercolors are not as well known, and this book has a bunch of like very large prints of watercolors, including one that is probably one of my absolute favorite paintings 
which is just like this fisherman's house kind of out in the somewhere in Germany. Um, and it's very like brown and warm and it's like this little house on a lake with a boat and uh, I'm just very pleased to have a very high quality copy print of this and so that is my pleasure that I'm sorry none of you can partake in unless you come to my house and look at the book for yourself so you have had it here at the office I did have it here yes because it was very large in my pile of books and I didn't want to take it all the way home so it was here for a little bit so some people saw it I remember being threatened if I did anything to that book, so yes, you must care about it. Yeah, I do care about it. It's been a short but intense relationship with this book. Excellent. <laughs> what is your pleasure, Hector? Well, I was debating what to say, but um, I think my pleasure is the first snowfall. Oh, yeah? Um, it, I think it's snowing right now while we're recording, or it was this morning. I think so. Um, there's something about snow. I know Canadians hate snow and complain about snow that's that's a uh, national sport here <laughs> but um there is something really beautiful and like equalizing about snow uh like a garbage can or a beautiful tree both look beautiful once they have snow on them <laughs> i believe so i love that i love walking in the street and and having snowflakes on my shoulders and and my head and uh, that's I know it's, it's, it's silly, but it's also a reminder of, of um, being in in Canada and, and Canada being a kind of beautiful place to be in. So there, there are many things that are beautiful of Colombia, the place I come from. Um, but uh, one of the things I had never seen before was um, snowfall. I had I had seen snow on the ground, but because we have it up in the mountains in Colombia, but I never I never seen it fall and. Just it's so silent and, and so peaceful and um it can make a car crash look beautiful. <laughs> which I've seen in the for one. So Aww. it's true. And it does I don't know, the first snowfall does kind of mark the change from fall heading into winter, even if we have technically quite a bit of fall left, it still changes the mood a bit. So I agree with you. Like I like the snow. That's it for our show this week. We hope you'll stay tuned for the rest of the semester. If you'd like to know more about the Center for Philosophy, Religion, and Social Ethics and the Institute for Christian Studies, you can visit us at icscanada.edu. If anything from this week's show piqued your interest, you can also email us at criticalfaith at icscanada.edu. You can also find us on Twitter. You can follow me as at Beware the Yeti. You can follow my co-host as at F underscore Hector. And you can follow ICS as at INSCHR. And from the heart of ICS, thank you all for listening. This has been Critical Faith. If you like what you heard, subscribe 
to us on iTunes and consider giving us a review. It helps people find us and keeps us on the radar. Most importantly, tell your friends. <laughs>